begin. So like I mentioned, um, Sefer Yermia, and really most of Nevi'im Achronim are where the general Jewish day school curriculum um, and really shul adult education curriculum kind of stop. Uh, many people have had the opportunity to learn Nevi'im Rishonim, Sefer Yehoshua, Sefer, uh, Sefer Shoftim, Malachim Aleph, and then by the time you reach Malachim Bet, uh, there's a, almost a, a fatigue of sorts. Uh, and I think that fatigue is attributable to a few things. And the first is, is that the Sfarim become increasingly difficult. The geopolitical stories behind the, the Sfarim, the understanding of the world that's involved and the knowledge of the background necessary in order to truly appreciate uh, what these Sfarim are teaching us is large. And uh, also, and I think uh, just as significant, is that the Sfarim are quite depressing. Um, there are few and far between moments of joy, of happiness, or when people are doing Ratzon Hashem, the will of God. Throughout Nevi'im Achronim, we find the prophets railing against an Israel that is backsliding, that is steeped in idolatry, uh, in, in, uh, steeped in, in other sins as well. And, uh, and we could, one could read Nevi'im Achronim and become quite depressed and look at the state of the Jewish people uh, as it's described by the prophets and say one of two things. Number one, that this is too difficult to look at. And number two is that this doesn't really apply to us. This doesn't really have any bearing for us in our day and age. Now, I want to disabuse us at least of the second notion. Chazal tell us that there were many, many Nevi'im. There are uh, there are Chavdalit Sifrei Tanakh, and we know of 48 Nevi'im that are listed in Tanakh that we read from. But Chazal tell us that there were many, many, many more Nevi'im that stood for the Jewish people. In fact, people would go to the Beit HaMikdash and Nevu'ah would be Shora upon them. The, the divine presence would rest upon people, and there were myriad prophets in Israel. So why is it that we only have 24 books of Tanakh? So the answer is, Chazal tell us, that only a nevuah shehutzrach alidoros, only a prophecy that was necessary for all generations was one that was written down. Meaning that the prophecies that we're going to be reading here and uh, studying hopefully are prophecies that speak to us in this day and age. And even though the context might be the ancient Near East and it might be the Jewish people of the 8th century to the 5th century BCE that we're going to be seeing now, there's stuff that's relevant in 2020 and beyond. And it's important, it behooves us to take the message of the prophets to heart. And I think that one of the goals of our learning this Sefer will be to draw the lines. Um, I won't be explicit. That's really going to be your job to draw the lines from the prophets, from the Nevi'im to our day and age. And the prophets speak to us in a clear in clarion voice, of morality, of ethics, of avodas Hashem, of what it means to have a relationship with God, and what happens when we abrogate that relationship, what happens when we abuse that relationship. So I want to just pause for a second. Those whose cameras I could see, thank you. Uh, it's good to, uh, to, to, see, uh, to see you and to learn together face-to-face -face as much as we can. I just want to make sure that people can hear me okay. All right, I always have to check that in a, in a Zoom meeting. And... Um, and that's, that's the first thing. The second reason that I wanted to learn Sefer Yermia, besides the fact that it's, uh, I think, one of the more neglected Sfarim of Tanakh, is that we 
just celebrated Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, and we enter into a time period for us that every year harks back to all the events that we're going to be learning about. If we're successful in our learning, the experience of the three weeks, Bein HaMetzarim period of uh, the year, culminating in Tisha B'Av and the kinos that we say, and Eicha, uh, which, is, uh, which is ascribed to Yirmiya, or to be, um, to be a little bit more specific, ascribed to Yirmiya's right-hand man, Tabarach ben Neria, Megillus Eicha, and the kinos. And this time period will all become that much more real, that much more understandable, uh, just based on my own limit, on my own learning of this sefer, which I really haven't touched before I started to prepare for the shiurim, so much of the kinos and so much of Megillus Eicha now starts to become a lot more clear and a lot more understandable. And I think as a subcategory of that is when we talk about the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, I think, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, I think that we oftentimes are referring to the second Beis HaMikdash, one that is a little bit closer in memory, even if it is in antiquity, and that's because there were Tanaim that experienced the second Beis HaMikdash, or at the very least, uh, lived right in the aftermath of destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash in 70 CE, in the Common Era. The first Beis HaMikdash is a little bit more cryptic, and the first Beis HaMikdash is a little bit more obscured by the passage of time and the passage of history, which I think is important for us to recognize that Tisha B'Av commemorates the destruction of both temples, and that the first temple is no less significant, and in fact, in many ways, more significant than the events and the goings-on in the second Beis HaMikdash. Chazal tell us that in the second Beis HaMikdash there were a number of miracles, ten to be exact, that were not extant, that were not present in the second Beis HaMikdash, that were present in the first Beis HaMikdash. So it's really important to be able to understand what exactly led to the destruction of the of the first Beis HaMikdash, in the language of Chazal. For what did we lose the land and for what were we exiled? And understanding the backdrop and understanding the history leading to the destruction is crucial for us as modern Jews and for all times. So with no further ado, I'm going to share uh, the source sheet that I put together. And the source sheet today and probably for the next two shirim and, and I'm going to give a little hit not slut, a little apology in the beginning, is that I intend to move in a rather deliberate, um, some might say a slower fashion than I ordinarily do, because I think understanding here is crucial. Taking the words of the Nevi'im seriously is crucial. And understanding uh, the often complex geopolitics that surround the story of the prophet is extremely important. So I'm going to move a little bit more deliberately than we ordinarily do. And uh, I also want to encourage people to, um, to interact, to, if you have a question, uh, to raise your hand in the, in the participants box, uh, to allow us to have as full experience as possible. So, timeline of the prophet's world. So in 650 BCE, before the Common Era, Yermia is born in Anatot, the city of Kohanim, and also in Irmikla. And this is, uh, we know from Sefer Yehoshua, when Yehoshua was conquering the land and parceling out sections of the land to the different tribes, we know that there were a number of cities and a number of uh, municipalities that were dedicated to the tribe of Levi, to the Kohanim and Levim, uh, because they did not receive a chilek and nachla in the land. They did not receive a portion in the land. Many of the tribes received sprawling territories. Levi did not. And we know that in Levi's 
cities in the in the in the municipalities that were parceled out to Levi, so many of those cities functioned as arimiklat, that they were cities of refuge for those that had killed people, uh, manslaughter inadvertently, or uh, anything uh, less than premeditated murder. We won't get into Masechus Makos right now. And Anatot was just one of those cities. Anatot was in the land of Binyamin. And this is going to be really important to our understanding of Sefer Yermia because as you could see in the map over here, here's Yerushalayim, a modern map. Here's Ramallah to the north of Yerushalayim, Biklechem to the south, and Yericho, uh, which goes towards the west. And Yerushalayim is right in the center of all this. We know that the territories of Judah and Benjamin, Yehuda and Binyamin, uh, the Gemara describes that they were interspersed with one another. That there was a question of whose portion in the land the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, would be situated in. So a, a kind of a kind of deal was struck and it basically laid in between the portions of Binyamin and Yehuda with the portion of Binyamin extending into the portion of Yehuda which is where Yerushalayim was but even more significant for our story is that the tribe of Binyamin sits on the borderlands between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah now what I mean to say is that after the beginning of the Davidic dynasty after David HaMelech and his son Shlomo HaMelech the monarchy split. Rehavam became the next king of the kingdom of Judah, and Yeravam became the first king of the breakaway kingdom of Israel. And the breakaway kingdom of Israel was a breakaway in all respects. It had its own temple, it had its own theology, in the sense that it became a place where, uh, where they assumed that the Torah, that the Beis HaMikdash was not commanded to be built on Har HaMoriah, but rather in the portion of Samaria, of northern Israel. And that split lasts until the very times that we're going to be discussing, until the times of Menashe. Menashe was the first king of Judah that did not have a counterpart in the northern territories, which were conquered by Assyria and the king Sancherib. And you may have heard of the ten lost tribes, the ten lost tribes were the tribes of the northern kingdom who were dispersed and sent over the river Sambation and uh, by all accounts were lost to history, although I should say parenthetically that now during, um, during the last century or so there has been a renewed interest in discovering and locating and tracking who those ten tribes were and in fact uh, many peoples have been identified um, or identify themselves as one of the lost tribes of Israel. And we know that in the Messianic vision, in the eschaton, those ten tribes will be returned. Uh, there will be a kibbutz galiot that will include, an ingathering of the exiles that will include those ten tribes who have been lost for all intents and purposes to the Jewish people. And which is why now it generates the notion that pretty much all of us nowadays are descended um, from one of two tribes, from Binyamin or Yehuda. And there are some that could potentially be descended from the tribe of Levi, although that's a rather complicated discussion because uh, we know that we don't have one of the things that the Messiah is going to do, or Eliyahu Hanavi, to be uh, more exact, is going to identify who comes from what tribe, and specifically is going to be Miyaches the Kohanim, that nowadays Kohanim and Leviim function on kind of an honor system. Anybody can basically present themselves as a Kohen or a Levi, that the lineages are not quite clear. Um, an interesting, cute story about that is that, I think I've mentioned this before, I had a Chavrusa in Yeshiva Rakotel many years ago, 
and uh, my Chavrusa was just a regular Brit. Uh, however, uh, word got out that he came from a particular family and they was descended from a particular family and people would come specifically to do Pidyon Haben to the redemption of the firstborn with him. Why? Because he came from a family, he was a descendant of the Shach. The Shach was a great commentator on the Shulchan Aruch, uh, Rabbi Shabtai HaKohen Rappaport. And the Shach was known to be what we call a Kohen Miyuchas. He had a family tree that was meticulously put together that describes a lineage that goes directly back to the tribe of Levi, that he indeed is a uh, bona fide, certified, uh, a certified Kohen. And therefore, when people heard of this, they came to do their pidyon habens with this Shana Aleph boy because he had a, he had a good lineage as a Kohen. He was as close as you could get to a Kohen Miuchas. Just an interesting story. So Sancheireb, the Assyrian king, who was the regional superpower, the Assyrian king had come, conquered the northern kingdom, and had dispersed them. Uh, and that was already the situation at the time that Yermia, that the prophet Yermia comes on the screen. Let's go back to our source sheet or our picture sheet for the time being. Uh, we notice that, uh, first of all, the Pasuk is Divrei Yermiyahu ben Chilkiyahu min ha-kohanim asher ba'anatot be'eretz binyamin. So Yermiyahu was the son of Chilkiyahu, and he came from the Kohanim of Anatot, the city of Kohanim. Somebody asked in the comments uh, the connection between the Levim and the Aremiklat. Uh, I don't want to get too far afield, but I will say that one connection is, is that the people that were confined to the Aremiklat could only become free, the Talmud tells us. They would only be released uh, at the death of the Kohen Gadol. Now, you could ask me what exactly the connection between the death of the Kohen Gadol and the uh, release of those who were confined to the Ari Miklat exactly is, uh, but I'm not exactly prepared to fully explain that right now. And to be quite honest, I'm a little bit unclear. I remember that I think it's the Gemara also describes that the mother of the Kohen Gadol who understood this connection would send gifts to those who were confined to the Ari Miklat in order to stave off perhaps prayers for her son's demise. Um, but to go back to our discussion of Anatot, uh, it was, um, as things usually are, Hashem winks at us. A friend of mine, Isaac Lebwal, a very dear friend of mine, sent me a picture yesterday of his uh, trip to Wadi Kelt in, uh, in Eretz Israel. If you've ever been to Wadi Kelt, it's quite beautiful. Wadi Kelt is, uh, is, uh, is a beautiful spring, and uh, a Wadi is a valley of sorts in the desert, and Wadi Kelt is, uh, is also in the portion right outside of Anatot, in the portion of Binyamin, and seems to be part of the stomping grounds of Yermia Hanavi. Now, another word, a prefatory comment on, what, on the name itself, uh, which I think is significant, is because, as you see over here, and, and I wasn't so Yesodi, I wasn't so uh, circumspect with this, but you'll hear some people call the prophet Yermia, Jeremiah, and you'll hear some people call the prophet Yirmiyahu. And this sort of splits along the lines of what kind of books you're reading. If you're based in the Tanakh, so Yirmiyah, with very few exceptions, is referred to as Yirmiyahu. In Lashon Chazal, in the Gemara, in the Talmud Bavli, with I don't think any exceptions, he's called Yirmiyah. And there's some uh, expression of this that's to be found in the Gemara in Erevin, which I'm going to take us to right now, the highlighted section over here, says, Amar Interestingly enough, the Manda Amar, the one who is speaking here, his name is Yermia as well. Rav Yermia Bar Lazar says, 
from the day that the temple was destroyed, it's enough for the world, world to use two letters, the Yud and the He. And as the proof text, meaning that the Yirmiyahu, the Hu at the end is dropped as a sign of mourning, perhaps. That in the language of Chazal, Yirmiyah, Jeremiah, is referred to as Yirmiyah without the who at the end. So I won't be, uh, I'm not smart enough to be as strict as possible with this policy, but we'll be calling him Yirmiyah for, uh, for the purposes of our Shi'ur. But there really is no difference between Yirmiyahu and Yirmiyah. It's really a difference between Lashon HaMikra, the language of the Bible, and Lashon Chazal, the language of Chazal. Interestingly enough, there's other characters as well, Yeshaya and Yeshayahu, uh, Chilkiyahu and Chilkiyah, Chizkiyahu and Chizkiyah. Many, many individuals in Tanakh uh, undergo this distinction between, I would say, a standing temple name with the Hu at the end, with the Vav at the end, and a uh, exile name without, with the yud hey that's, uh, that has dropped the Vav. So just to give you uh, an image of Anatot, so this is an ancient etching of Anatot, you can see the camels, it is desert territory. Here it is on a map of Eretz Binyamin. Here's Yerushalayim, where my cursor is, and here's Anatot. And this is basically what Anatot looks like nowadays. It is rugged desert territory of Hevel Binyamin, as it's called nowadays. It holds a special significance for me, I might say, on a personal note, because in the army, uh, you are Tofes Gizra you take a certain area as the area that you're responsible for. So for six months, our Gizra was specifically this area. There is a uh, Palestinian refugee camp, which is, uh, which is rumored to be the exact place where it was, which is called Anata. Uh, Anata is right south of Ramallah, right near the Kalandia checkpoint to go into Israel proper. And there is, it is mountainous, rugged, desert territory. The sunsets are magnificent. Um, it uh, looks right over the Bik'ah. On a good day, you could see the Dead Sea from it. And uh, here's Anatot, which is an Israeli yishuv, an Israeli settlement. Believe it or not, there's even an airport in modern Anatot. Um, and we, we sat basically right over here in Ramah. That's where our base was. So this area is an area that I personally am very familiar with. I've traversed the paths that ostensibly the prophet traversed as well during his peregrinations on his missions. This is the, uh, this is the area of the prophet. This is what it looks like nowadays. Uh, quite beautiful. Um, just as a side point, as a side point, uh, let me go back to the main screen. I have to see people, you know. Um, the, uh, in the diaries of the Nazir, uh, the, one of the main Talmidim of Rav Kook, whose sparim are right over here. I've got all of his books very proudly. His sparim right over here. So the Navi, the, the Navi, the Nazir writes his whole life was basically um, a push to achieve prophecy. And he describes in one of the most exciting and shocking chapters of his diary as it was published, the Nazir of David Cohen describes after he had arrived in Eretz Yisrael that he would go out to the mountains of Yehuda and Yerushalayim and he would look out, he would gaze out at nature in an attempt to try and experience some sort of Ruach HaKodesh, some sort of divine inspiration. He describes a journey that he undertook with another Talmud of Rav Kook, Rav Moshe Gervitz. Rav Moshe Gervitz is responsible for uh, a collection 
of Shalishudas Torah, third meal Torah that was set over by Rav Kook. Right now we only have from Bereshus and Shemos, Shemuos Ra'aya, and uh, Rav Moshe Gervitz and the Nazir, of David Cohen, went out for a tiyul in Wadi Kelt, understanding that this is indeed the land, the territory of prophets. And as they were journeying in Wadi Kelt, they got lost. And he describes being in this area near Anatot, lying down on the ground without water in his tzitzis and uh, waiting to die. Uh, he was saved, but he describes the power uh, the power of the landscape, the power of the territory, the power of the area. And I think that it's important to recognize that the landscape of Eretz Yisrael does have a strong effect on the psyche of the prophet. So I don't think it's for naught that this is indeed the land of Yermia, the place where he's born into. We're going to go back to our screen. One other note that I want to point out about the Kohanim of Anatot, there's some discussion as to why there would be a city of Kohanim that would be outside of the temple precincts. Uh, it seems that these were descendants of Eli HaKohen, but that these were also Kohanim that were not involved in the service in the temple. Rather, these were Kohanim that were involved really in agrarian pursuits. They were farmers, they were shepherds, and they were not particularly involved in the work in the temple precincts. So much for Yirmiyahu's birthplace. At 639 BCE, King Josiah, or Yoshiahu, ascends to the throne of Judah at age eight. And here we begin our limud in earnest. And I want to point out that a lot of the background that we're going to be learning comes from the book of two kings, Malachim Bet. And the reason is, is because many events that happen in the last four chapters, chapter 21 to 25, specifically the last two chapters, chapter 24 and 25, Chavdalad and Chavhei of Sefer Malachim Bet, are contemporaneous accounts of the things that Yermia, that the prophet Jeremiah is describing as well. So really, in order to understand Sefer Yermia, you must understand the end chapters of Malachim. So let's take a look at the lineage that leads down to Yoshiahu HaMelech, who is pivotal, whose role is pivotal in the career of Yermia HaNavi. So we'll begin the Psukim. The Psukim are over here. And much like I planned for the rest of our shirim, we're not going to be going exactly pasuk by pasuk, but rather I'm going to try and highlight the significant parts. And my goal really would be for people's interest to be piqued enough that they would open up the Sefer of Yirmiya themselves, and they would be able to have an understanding of a book which is not always following in a, a chronological order or a pat chronological order as we would expect it to, but rather jumps back and forth between events. For example, chapter 3 and 31 of Sefer Yerinia are essentially talking about the same thing. This is a crucial point that's brought up. I'm going to stop the share again. This is a crucial point that's brought up in a book that I used to help me study this book, one that I recommend, uh, which is uh, the study of Sefer Yermia by Rabbi Binyamin Lau. And there's some other books that I used in preparation of it as well. I used the Sefer Dat Mikra. I used the Sensino Press's translation of Sefer Yermia, which I found uh, wonderful as well because it has a beautiful digest that highlights uh, some of the crucial remarks of the commentaries on Tanakh. And, um, and then I also I have in the mail, it hasn't uh, quite arrived yet, but there's another scholar who produced a, uh, a from understanding of the archaeology of Sefer Yermia. And I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but suffice it to say that there are figures written in Sefer Yermia that we have physical evidence 
physical evidence that they lived and existed and that these were real people that we are talking about, of course, uh, but it's always quite beautiful to find um, that archaeological evidence of their having existed, of their presence. So those are the books mostly. And uh, I would also mention that Raviol Ben Nun uh, has written a number of articles on the Sefer, and I've utilized a number of them. I still am utilizing a number of Raviol Ben Nun and Rav Yehuda Eli Tzur's uh, articles on Sefer Yermia. And I also have an Olam HaTanach uh, that I hope to bring in uh, to some of the classes as well that we'll be using to uncover this Sefer. So let's take a look at the lead-up to, to Sefer Yermia. So Menashe was 12 years old. Ben Menashe b'Malko. Menashe was 12 years old. His father Chizkia, or Chizkiyahu, was a great king who had intended to reform and to remove the scourge of idolatry from the, from, from the kingdom of, of Yehuda. And Menashe basically reversed all of the reforms that his father had enacted. Menashe was a singularly wicked character, although even that is a little complex. Let's take a look at who Menashe was. Ben Shtemesrei Shana Menashe Bemalko. Menashe was 12 years old when he assumed the throne. And he ruled for an improbable 55 years. That's a tremendously long reign. His mother's name was Israel. And he acted with all of the iniquity and all of the sin. He did evil in the eyes of God like the nations that we had conquered in order to get to the land of Israel. Principal amongst those sins was the sin of idolatry. Chizkiyahu, his father, had done great work in removing unauthorized sacrificial temples. Bamot is that people would go ahead and they would construct Mizbeach, they would construct an altar, and they would sacrifice whenever they felt like it. It was decentralization of the worship, and this was something that had existed for time immemorial, and Chizkiyahu HaMelech had tried to get rid of this. Vayakim Mizbechot Baal, and he erected altars for the idol Baal, a particularly pernicious idol worship that lasted for many, many years. Vayasa Sheira, and he erected the idolatrous Asherah pole. Ka'asherah sa Achav Melech Yisrael. Like Achav, another wicked king, who had erected in the northern kingdom. Vayishtachu l'chol tzva shamayim v'yavodosam. They worshipped all of the hosts of the heavens and all of the idols that could be. Ubanam izbechot bebeis Hashem. Some of these altars were erected even in the house of God and the temple itself. Asher Amar Hashem Yerushalayim Asimet Shmi. In the place that God said that His name would be associated with. So these bamot, this wasn't just some peripheral thing that Menashe was endeavoring to do, but that the idol worship and the building of the bamot was situated in the heart of the kingdom, in the heart of the religious and spiritual life of the Jewish people. Vayive Mizbechot Lechot Tzva Shamayim Veheavir Et Beno Be'esh so Menashe, at least from this description, was terrible. He would worship the Baal, he would erect Asherah poles, he even constructed unauthorized altars and shrines in the Beis HaMikdash, 
and he even would be party to the worship of Molech. Molech was a particularly disgusting kind of idolatry in which children would be passed through the fire, immolated before that god. The onin, venichesh, necromancy, magic, and ovin, yedonim, we're probably familiar with the last of these, Ovin Yedonim, because we know that Shaul HaMelech, in a state of despair and confusion, went to consult Aisha's Ov, a necromancer, in a seance of sorts. All of these terrible things he did, evil in the eyes of God, Lahachis, and it angered God in a provocative way. Lachain, Ko Amar Hashem Yisrael. Therefore God said, Hinini mevi ra'a al Yerushalayim, because of Menashe's deeds in this 55-year reign, I am going to bring evil onto Yerushalayim. Terrible calamity is going to befall Judah and Yerushalayim. Asher kol shom'ah titzalna shneozna. Everybody will, uh, it says their ears shall tingle here, but it's almost like, like you can shudder from the thought to hear of what will happen. And this is a very crucial pasuk. Because Yirmiyahu Hanavi later on is going to describe one of the main reasons for the destruction of the temple is going to hark back directly to this Pasuk. He's going to say because of what Menashe did, Jerusalem and Yehuda are going to be utterly destroyed and he even uses the same language. In fact, the Navi, the Nevi'ah Chulda, who we're going to meet in a moment, the prophetess Chulda also uses this language of the ears perking up at the terrible news as to what is going to befall Yerushalayim. Why? They've done terrible things in my eyes. It was lahachis, it was provocative and terrible with knowledge and premeditation. And there's a very difficult line over here from the day God says over here, it's as if the end has taught us about everything that came up to here. The end, the, the state, the, the sorry state of things by this time is something that, that, that teaches us that really, if you look back on the history of the Jewish people, God says, I mean, from the day that they left Egypt until this time, it's been terrible. And that's a very difficult thing to hear. They didn't get it right. The rest of Menashe and his evil deeds is described in the book of Chronicles, which is a much later book of the kings of Yehuda. He's buried in the courtyard of his house, and his son Amon becomes king after him. Now, I want to pause here for a moment to say that Menashe comes out as singularly wicked in the eyes of Tanakh, singularly terrible, with the depth of how steeped he was in idolatry and the, the almost single-minded. I mean, we described over here a number of different types of idols, the almost single-minded dedication to idolatry and really establishing in the land of Israel to the point that God was so angered, to the point that God was so despairing, Kivyachol, of the state of the Jewish people at the time, that the Navi Yermia ascribes one of the main reasons for the destruction of the first temple as being because of what Menashe does. And remember, this is a century prior, uh, roughly, 
to Yirmiyah having come on the scene, but that Menashe had established it so strong and in such a deep way that it was going to be almost impossible to uproot what he had done. And we're going to see, so impossible that even during a period of national renaissance enacted by Melech Yoshiahu in trying to cleanse the land of the scourge of idolatry, that Menashe's idolatry, that which had been implanted in the land, is so strong that even a nationwide tshuva movement cannot fully uproot it. And thus, already from this time, the fate of Yushalayim is nearly sealed. Now, Menashe is also a little bit more complex than what's presented over here in Sefer Melachim. In Sefer Divrei Hayamim, an episode in Menashe's life is described where Menashe is taken by the Assyrian king back in chains to their palace and is imprisoned there. The reason might be that they had suspected Menashe of being less than loyal to the Assyrians. Up until that point, they had basically been, he had basically been a vassal king, a king that ruled only at the whim of the Assyrian conquerors. And they took him back in chains, and it's described that Menashe davin to Hashem, and therefore was returned back to the land of Israel. Now that's a very difficult thing to understand. I thought Menashe was this wicked, terrible, irredeemable character. So what exactly is going on over here? I want to show you a very interesting Mishnah. The Mishnah appears in Mesechet Sanhedrin, Perek Tes. Um, you know what? I have it over here. I'm going to make this a little bit larger so people can see because like everything, you have to learn a lot and we have to take the words of Chazal, the oral Torah, together with together with the written Torah. So, right, uh, you, uh, one of our listeners is pointing out that, that this last line is really important. Just before we get to the Mishnah, that Menashe's end is that Menashe is not buried with the rest of the kings of Judah. Menashe is buried separately. Now we know in Judaism, where you're buried is a very significant thing. We know, for example, the Gemara tells us that people that are guilty of certain sins are people that are put to death by Bastin, so uh, they're not buried in the same area. There's distancing of their graves. And we also know that there are cemeteries, even in, even in relatively modern times, where only Shomrei Shabbos, for example, were buried. Um, there's all kinds of folk tales about discovering certain people who were thought to be wicked in their lifetime uh, and then found to be tzaddikim being disinterred and reburied in the proper place. So that is an important note as well. So what do we have in Divrei HaYamin? In Sefer Divrei HaYamin, we have a Pasuk, Vayispalel, highlighted over here in, the, in my footnotes. Vayispalel love Menashe davened to God, Vayyatarlo, and he was answered, Vayishma Trinaso, Menashe's prayers were answered, and he was allowed to return from captivity in Assyria to his throne. And the Gemara tells us that that he was returned back to his kingdom, but not to eternal life. What's that talking about? So the Mishnah tells us, three kings and four commoners, they have no portion in the world to come. Who are the three kings? Yeravam, Ahav, and Menashe. Yeravam, the first king of the breakaway northern kingdom. Ahav, wicked king in Yeshaya's time, the Navi Isaiah's time. 
Umenashe and Menashe is one of these three people, I guess in all recorded history, that have no portion in the world to come. A very heavy thing. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Menashe yesh lo chelek lo olam haba. Rabbi Yehuda says actually Menashe does have a portion in the world to come because it tells us in Divrei HaYamim that he daven to Hashem and he was answered and he was returned back to his kingdom. So the answer, they say, he was only returned back to his kingdom that he was not given a portion in the world to come. Even in the Gemara, there's further discussion of this. In the Gemara in Sanhedrin on Kuf Beis, discussing this Mishnah, Rabbi Yochanan establishes that Menashe was one of the main reasons for the destruction. I even referenced this Pasuk before. In the 15th chapter of Sefer Yermia, in Pasuk Dalid, says, V'natatim zva'ah, you will be a disgrace, l'chomam l'chos to all the kingdoms of the land, Biglal Menashe ben Yechizkiyahu melech Yehuda, because of Menashe, son of Chizkiyahu melech Yehuda, ala shirasab Yerushalayim, for the things that he did in Jerusalem, that we just described in this chapter 21 of Malachim Bet, all of these terrible things. Now even more incredible than that, is that there is a story, and uh, and, and it's okay, I, I, I said we would be slow and deliberate, so we're not going to finish Sefer Yirmiya or even the background tonight. I hope that's okay with you. But I want to read to you a story in Sanhedrin. Here's the story. In the highlighted section over here, Rav Ashi, Uke Rav Ashi was going to be discussing these three kings in his shir. Amar Lamachar Niftach And he said somewhat sarcastically, Tomorrow we open up by talking about our three friends, Yerava Macha and Menashe. Asa Menashe, itchazilu b'chalma. After he said that that night, when he had returned from the base medrash, from giving his class, Menashe, King Menashe, appeared to him in a dream. Amar chavrech v'chaveri da'avuch karaslan. He says, you call me friends? I'm not your friend. He says, you could belittle me like that? And he asked him a question. When you prepare to say hamotzi, where do you score the challah with your knife? Where do you break bread from? Important halacha. Rav Ashi says, I don't know. He said, you don't even know where to break bread in proper way. And you call me your friend? I'm not your friend. He said, teach me. Ravashi says, teach me, and tomorrow I will teach your halacha in your name. He says it's from the place where the beginning of the crusting process begins. And Ravashi responds to him, You're so knowledgeable in halacha. Why were you so... Connected. Why were you so steeped in idolatry? Amarle, Menashe responds to him, Ihavis Hasan, Ravashi, Amora, great Amora. If you would have been there, if you would have been in my time, you would have hiked up your gown, you would have hiked up your tunic, and you would have run after the Avodazara. Lemachar, the next day, Amarlahula Rabbana Niftach Biravavasa. He says, tomorrow, we, the next day, we are going to open up by talking about our teachers. No longer our friends in this comical way, but our teachers. So even though we're reading about Menashe 
and the descriptions of him over here. And although we have to understand on their own way the words of Chazal, we see over here a singularly wicked individual. We even are told by Chazal that one of the things that Menashe did was that he killed his grandfather. And his grandfather, anybody know who Menashe's grandfather was? Gemarin Brachos, Dafyur Amabes. Anybody want to take a guess as to who Menashe's grandfather was? Yeshayahu ben Amotz. Yeshayahu ben Amotz, the great prophet Isaiah, was the grandfather of, of, of Menashe. And the Gemara tells us that one of the terrible things, they add on many more great sins that he did and, uh, on top of the sins described over here in Malachim Bet. But one of the sins was that he was responsible for the death of his grandfather. He killed Yeshaya. He sawed a log in which Yeshaya was hiding in and killed him. That's how terrible he was. So the question that I'll leave you with tonight is how could an individual like this even be said to be somebody that would accomplish any sort of uh, tshuva, any sort of repentance? Uh, there's an amazing discussion in the Gemara in the Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi in Sanhedrin tells us that when Menashe was taken uh, back in chains to Assyria, he was put in uh, what we would call a brazen bull. He was put in a copper cast and it was heated up underneath him and he was being tortured to death. And it says that whilst in this brazen bull, in this copper torture device, slowly being cooked to death, that Menashe began to daven. And it says that he davened to every Avodah in the entire world. And of course, he wasn't being answered. In fact, the Gemara is so amazing, so incredible, that I feel the need to uh, share it with you. And we'll end with this tonight. Uh, even though we generally learn for an hour since we've been on Zooms, for those that are joining us for this series, since we've been on Zooms, we've been limiting it to 45 minutes, which is, uh, I think, appropriate because of the intense fatigue of not being able to see people in person and staring at screens. Um, but I want to finish with this note, and hopefully, um, hopefully we'll be able to leave on a rather positive note. Here's the Gemara. This is the Yerushalmi. God spoke to Menashe and his nation. They did not listen. So they took Menashe in chains. So he was taken in these iron chains into, uh, into, uh, into captivity. Amr of Levi, Mula Shel Asulo, they made him uh, a cast of bronze, of copper, around him. Vinasnu, Vinasnu Osa Bitsocho, and they put Menashe inside of it. Vayuma Sikin Tachtav, and they were igniting underneath him. Shekeven Shiraz, Shetzarasa Tzorlo, Yiniach Avodazarba Olam Shlo Yiskira. And when he saw that he was in a tough spot, he started davening, he started praying to be saved by all of the idols in which he had served. And nothing was working. And then he said, He said, I remember when my father, righteous king, he taught me this pasuk when I was young. In Shul. In when it will be difficult for you, and all these terrible things will find you in the end of days. From the Torah, at the end of the Torah, you return to God and you listen to God. Because God is always open to tshuva, and He will not forget you, nor will He forget the covenant that was promised to our ancestors. 
So Menashe said, He said, if I'm answered, great. Maybe I'll try Hashem. Maybe I'll dive into Hashem. Wicked Menashe says this while being roasted alive. So the ministering angels closed up the windows to heaven so that Menashe's prayers would not reach God. And the angel said, God, This wicked individual who even went so far as to place idols in the temple. You're going to accept his repentance? You're going to accept this? Amr Lahen, God responds, Im eni makabla. If I don't accept Menashe's tshuva, his repentance, hareani noel esadeles bale tshuva. I'm thereby locking the door in front of all ba'alei tshuva. Now we could spend an entire series just on this Yerushalmi. Ma'asalo HaKadosh Baruch What did God do? Chatelo chatira mitachas kise hakavod. God made kivyachol as if to say a tunnel, a back door, a back door, if you will, underneath the divine throne. Vishamatrinasa. And he heard Menashe's backdoor repentance. And this is how Yerushalmi understands that verse in Divrei Hayamin, in Chronicles, that Menashe davened to God and was answered. And was thereby returned. The one that was discussed in the Mishnah in Sanhedrin that we just saw. So this teaches us that a person, even a king Menashe, can return in tshuva. Now Menashe, Menashe dies and his son Amon becomes king. And next week, we're going to Amir Tzashem continue just to give a little bit of previews. Next week, in Sefer Yeshaya, we're going to pick right off where chapter 21 of Sefer Malachim ends, and we're going to learn about Amon, and then we're going to eventually learn about Yoshiyahu HaMelech, which is bringing us into times contemporary with the Navi Yermia. I'm going to pause here.